things to help us today. It's not going to be a real in-depth uh, infectious disease specialty type of talk, but more of a talk about how we can be practical and, and still do a good job taking care of patients, uh, even in a setting where we have limited resources for diagnosis, limited resources for treatment. We can still give good medical care, and I think that's very important. That honors God and what we do is that even though our focus in missions is to be the salt that we talked about, um, as we do that, we give good medical care and, and do the best we can. And that's hopefully this talk will help us to do that a little better. Uh, diarrhea is a big problem. And we sometimes lose sight of that, especially in this country. I was giving a talk on medical missions uh, at a Christian college, so a missions class uh, a couple weeks ago. And it reminded me that things that we take for granted, but uh, that they were just blown away, the professor especially was blown away, that children actually die from diarrhea. I mean, that's something unheard of here. That's something we're not used to. And yet, across the world, it is the third, diarrhea is the third leading cause of death from infection in the world. And so it is uh, a huge problem, and most of those deaths happen in children. Uh, 80%, in fact, are in children less than two years of age. And it's something that we can do a good job of helping to make a difference in. So that's what we're going to talk about today and how we can help to do that. One of the, the things that's really helpful as we think about patients with diarrhea is being able to just divide them into a couple of categories that will really point, point us in the right direction of treatment choices. And there are a lot of different schemes to do this in the literature. Uh, um, basically, they come into two categories. Um, one is could be gastroenteritis. Another terminology would call it non-inflammatory diarrhea. Another terminology, WHO terminology, just calls it diarrhea without blood. And then there's uh, the dysentery or inflammatory diarrhea or in the WHO terminology, uh, diarrhea with blood. So, um, in the sort of gastroenteritis category, the predominant symptoms are it's a watery diarrhea. A lot of times there's vomiting. Uh, a lot of times it's fairly high volume of diarrhea. If you have ability to do a, a stool exam in your setting, this can be done actually fairly simply as long as you have a microscope. Uh, it just takes a small smear of stool and, and a microscope. And you can see, are there white cells or not? And that... Um, is something that actually can be available in a lot of settings and can be very simple and very helpful in differentiating these. And then the common organisms, uh, a lot of the viruses that cause diarrhea fall into this category, the rotavirus, norovirus, uh, uh, some of the uh, toxigenic E. coli, um, and even the E. coli uh, O157 sometimes will present with the, the non-inflammatory type. Um, more chronically, things like Giardia, uh, cryptosporidium, and then uh, what's been in news a lot lately, and especially in the situation in Haiti, is the, the cholera will present with a, just a profuse, watery, non-bloody diarrhea. Um, the other big category in the dysentery or inflammatory diarrhea tend to have more abdominal pain. Obviously, there's overlap. You can have abdominal pain in both of these, but, but pain can be tends to be more prominent in inflammatory forms. Uh, tenesmus or pain with bowel movements, uh, typically, the diarrhea isn't as big of volumes, and uh, typically you're going to see blood, blood and mucus. And again, if you can do a, a very simple stool exam, you can see the white cells or polys uh, in, the, in the stool um, with the, the blood. Of course, you'll see the red cells as well. 
And these organisms, uh, invasive E. coli, are more likely to cause the, the bloody uh, type diarrhea. And then Shigella, Campylobacter, things that we think of in, in the dysentery category. Salmonella um, is another big one. Yersenia and some of the different pathogens there. Um, so there's just some simple things in our evaluation of patients just that we want to uh, keep an eye on. Um, in the history, again, because we're looking to try to figure out which category our patient's in, uh, that really guides what, what the key points of the history are in terms of making sure, you know, we talk about what's going on with the stool. Is it, is it watery or bloody, volume, how often? Uh, fever, uh, of course. Uh, nature of the abdominal pain, how severe is the pain, location. Um, have they used antibiotics recently? That's not as common of an issue on the mission field. Actually, it is when we're seeing patients here in the States where we have to worry a lot about uh, C. diff. Are they having weight loss? How long have they been sick? That, that points us in a lot of different directions. And, and what's their underlying health status becomes very important as well. And just the key points on the exam, again, looking at the fever, and especially in children, you know, how toxic does the patient look? You know, is the kid running around the room and, and looking pretty good, or is he just a real lethargic limp, you know, in the mother's lap? That's a real important uh, thing to be looking at. And that leads us to really assessing for hydration, which we want to talk a lot about. And then the abdominal exam is also key in looking for, you know, could this be, you know, something leading to an acute abdomen, like a typhoid fever type situation, or, um, or not. And then we talked some about the stool exam. If you have ability to do ovum parasites and look at that, that can be obviously very helpful. Um, again, on some of our mission situations, that may not be easily obtained or may not be within the realm of the expense the patient can bear. Um, stool cultures uh, are nice. In most of these situations, we may not have that. Um, so that's not going to be as helpful in those settings. This is the World Health Organization schematic of how to categorize dehydration. And dehydration is really, when we're talking about diarrhea and we're talking about sort of the ABCs like we would in an ACOS type of setting, um, for a diarrhea illness, you start with a dehydration. It's kind of your, your ABC assessment, and, and that's, that's the first thing we really have to look at, especially in, in moderate or severe diarrhea. Um, now, the WHO schematic for uh, dividing out diarrhea is a little different from what we um, sometimes are taught in in settings in the U.S. where we talk about mild, moderate, severe dehydration, uh, basically the WHO setting is no dehydration, some dehydration, or severe dehydration. So it's a little simpler, which is always nice. And part of that is in training some of our uh, overseas uh, um, nurses or especially even uh, health workers in the communities can be taught this schematic fairly simply and, and still get, get, get good care to the, the patients. So... No dehydration, the patient's going to be well, they're looking alert, their eyes look normal, uh, not, no particular uh, abnormal thirst, uh, and then the skin turgor is the main physical sign in them. You know, when you do the skin pinch, especially in the abdomen of a child, it'll, it'll go back immediately. Some dehydration, they're going to be restless, irritable, uh, especially in children. Maybe their eyes will look a little sunken. Uh, they're thirsty because they're dehydrated, so they're trying to drink. Uh, and their skin target goes back, they just categorize it as slowly. Um, another thing just uh, from being used to how it was taught before is we do the capillary refill is sort of a, uh, a similar assessment and, and maybe one to two seconds on that. And then uh, severe dehydration, patient's going to be lethargic or unconscious, 
Again, their eyes are going to look sunken. Uh, now they're so sick that they're not drinking. They're dehydrated, they need to drink, but, but they're too sick to drink, too lethargic. Um, and then the skin goes back very slowly. So that's a pretty simple schematic that we can use in our mission settings, teach our, our non-medical helpers um, as well, and it uh, can be really useful. When we talk about treatment of dehydration, uh, the WHO schematic is sort of an ABC um, plan. And plan A is those kids in that first category, the diarrhea, um, but they're already not dehydrated. And, of course, these we can treat at home and teach the, the parents how to take care of the patient. Um, they still need extra fluid. They're not dehydrated, but they're having increased fluid losses, and they will be dehydrated if we don't really pay attention and, and, and work on the fluid. Um, in children that are breastfeeding, that's still the most appropriate fluid. Um, so very much encourage you know, breastfeeding children to continue. Uh, and an oral rehydration solution um, can be a supplement, and we can talk about that. Uh, we will talk a lot about that. Zinc supplementation is uh, uh, somewhat more recent uh, development and has been really helpful in uh, especially children with diarrhea. Um, you want to continue the feeding. And then, very important, since these patients are going to be treated at home, we're going to take them out of our clinic. You want to make sure that we give good instructions and good teaching uh, to the parent or caregivers about uh, when to come back. You know, if the child's not improving, they're, they're having persistent high fever, they're having a, just a huge volume of diarrhea, and there's some concern that they're, they will be dehydrated shortly. You want to make sure they come back. They're having repeated vomiting and just not able to keep any liquids down. Uh, they may have some vomiting. Usually you can orally hydrate through that, but if the vomiting is severe, that might be a problem or it could be a sign of other illness or obstructions. Um, you know, if the child is dramatically thirsty and there's concern that they're still not keeping up with their fluid losses, um, if they're having blood in their stool, uh, not feeding, eating, drinking poorly. Any of those things, you want to make sure that the, the caregivers know to, to bring the child back if you send them home. It's real important to give uh, a target to the people who are taking care of these children so they know how much fluid to give. And uh, basically, you want to keep up with each loose stool. So uh, the um, recommendations are on here. The children under two, about 50 to 100 mils per stool. Uh, larger children, 100 to 200 mils. And then um, older kids and adults, just make sure they drink as much as tolerated. And then they're, uh, on top of this, you want you know, their basic fluid needs to be met. So um, we'll give, give people a target. And this child looks pretty good. Mom is uh, able to hydrate the baby uh, and uh, um, take care of her. Plan B is for those children that are in that some dehydration category. And these are our target for using the oral rehydration. And basically your goal is about 75 milliliters per kilogram in the first four hours. And that's important. You know, when we write an order for IV fluid, we don't just write IV fluid. We say how much to give. And, and it's the same in oral hydration. One of the reasons it fails, I think, at times is we're not specific enough and we don't have a good enough target. So it's very important. It's only going to work if you get the right amount of fluid in. So it's really important to give that target uh, to our caregivers, the people that are helping, so that we make sure they get it in. Um, a lot of times you have to start real slow, and that can be another reason for failure if you try to pound too much in at once and the child may throw up. Even if they're vomiting, you can usually hydrate through uh, mild or moderate vomiting if you go real slow. So a little teaspoon every couple minutes and just 
keep it going and just gradually increase it so you can try to get, get to that target. If they vomit, just give them about a 10, 15 minute break and just start again and keep going. Just start more slowly. And then also, in addition to these targets, you have to th factor in the ongoing losses. So the things we talked about before, if they're still having diarrhea, you have to add in that extra amount of fluid and really try to get that in. So uh, this table just gives you targets for a for age and weight, but really at 75 moles per kilo will will work for for any stage. Important to keep monitoring what's going on. Most of the time this works real well, but there are some children that that it's not. So monitor to make sure they're getting enough fluid, and if it's not working, be ready to to get more aggressive if, if the child seems to be going downhill. You get to that four-hour time, you need to reassess and say, okay, yeah, things are better, we hit our target on fluid, and the child looks well, and we can transition to home care. Or we're improved, but we need to keep an eye on this, this child and, and really push some more fluid, so we might continue in this plan B or rehydration under observation phase. Or at any point, they seem to be, be going downhill, we go to plan C. and making sure they get good home care instruction to keep things going. Child looks a little sicker. Um, by the way, this is one of the few pictures that, that I had, but, but don't do what's in this picture. Don't Syringes with caps are a choking risk, and so be careful about that. Good. All right, uh, plan C, severe dehydration. And these are the children we're going to really need to think about IV fluids. Um, they're lethargic, they're, they're looking really sick, and and uh, we need to, to act quickly to, to keep things from getting out of hand. Um, lactate ringers, if you have it, is typically the preferred fluid. It has a little bit of bicarb, which helps with the acidosis that goes with this. Um, saline is fine. It will do, do the job. And in these kids, you want to get a goal of 100 mils per kilogram. And you do that in, in two phases. The first phase is sort of the, the, the bolus phase, uh, 30 mils per kilo over the first 30 minutes, or if it's a young child uh, under a year, go stretch that out over an hour. And you can repeat that, that bolus phase with the pulse is weak. Um, so if they're still looking really bad after that first first uh, bolus, do it again. And then another 70 uh, per kilo over the next uh, two and a half to five hours, depending on how old the child is. So. Again, just like with the oral therapy, keeping an eye is really important, and that is uh, uh, sometimes difficult in a, a busy mission setting, but, but trying to keep an eye on what's going on and, and reassessing. So, you know, if they're not improving, things are getting worse, you need to step in. Even during this rehydration phase with IV fluids, we can start the oral rehydration as well, especially if we're getting some improvement where the child's waking up, they're not so lethargic, maybe the vomiting's not too bad, go ahead and get them drinking right away, even, even during this phase. Um, and then just keep reassessing um, every three hours or so as they improve, shift to the oral, or uh, eventually, hopefully, for home going. Sometimes you're in a setting where you're, you're too far out, you don't have IV fluid available, and you have some, some choices you have to make. Um, NG tube hydration is an option. Um, if you're in a setting where you can safely uh, get an NG tube down a child, that can be helpful, and then you just... Use the same targets uh, with um, oral rehydration solution through the NG tube. Um, actually going more for 20 per kilo per hour, up to 120 uh, with the uh, NG tube hydration. Um, 
You just got to watch them really carefully for vomiting. Uh, be real careful about aspiration risk since you got the, the tube down. Um, watching for the abdominal distension. You can slow down your fluids if you need to. Um, if they're still not improving and you know you're pretty far out, you definitely have to make that move to try to get them somewhere where they can get the IV fluids. Sometimes this will be a bridge to, to get you through. And then the other thing we really didn't talk about that's kind of beyond this talk is you know difficulty with IVs and if you have access to IO um, infusion, that, that works very well too. So we've talked about our, our IV hydration. Uh, just a couple more slides about oral rehydration. We really underuse this, actually, for those of us that work in both settings and work in, in the U.S., it's really underused, I think, here. And this is something we can learn. Uh, sometimes when we talk about how we do things on the mission field, we think, well, we do it that way because we have to because it's a mission field. This is actually better way ahead of what, what goes on in a lot of settings here in the U.S. Um, with the oral hydration, you don't have the cost, IV line complications. Um, you can do the treatment at home. Uh, during the hydration phase under observation in the office or ER, you can do a lot of teaching so that parents can really do this at home. There are some contraindications. We already talked about severe hydration when you have to get them hydrated quickly. If there's concern about an ileus or obstruction, it's not going to work. Um, although most of the time you can hydrate through vomiting, sometimes it's just too severe and it doesn't work, or the diarrhea is just too severe uh, you know, in, in some of the cholera settings and, and it's not going to work and you have to have to go with the IV fluids. Um, obviously, if they're unconscious and can't drink, you're not going to be pouring fluid down. So, Or in some settings where you're not sure what's going on, you might think it might be more of a, uh, a surgical abdomen type of situation that's triggering the diarrhea, then obviously you want an IV line in, in those settings. The solutions are, are listed here. Uh, basically, the new formulation that the WHA went to a few years ago is a little bit lower osmolarity. And they found that that's even more effective. The standard WHS solutions have worked great for many years and, and saved many children. Um, but the lower osmolality ones seem to work just a little bit better. And a lot of the commercial ones that are available here in the U.S. are similar enough that they're going to work fine, too. The PDLite's pretty close in osmolality to the WHO. Um, Hydrolyte, Inflite, whatever you want to choose. Uh, the key is to remember that a lot of these old home remedies, you can see the differences there, especially in the glucose content and the osmolality. Um, you know, the old, like we were treated when we were kids with our parents, you know, give them Coke or apple juice or Gatorade. Uh, the, the main issue is there's too much sugar, and it's that sugar that um, osmotically draws out the fluids and keeps the diarrhea going. So um, those are the things you want to try to try to avoid and, and use a more appropriate solution. This can be done, homemade, a couple formulas out there um, that are good. Uh, most settings, the oral rehydration salt packets are, are available and pretty inexpensive, even for people living in uh, uh, fairly impoverished areas. You can usually get these fairly inexpensively. And if at all possible, use the pre-made packets. Um, it just takes out that possibility of an error in, in preparing the formula. So. If you are in a setting where that's just not possible, uh, a liter of water and you want clean water, either from a shared clean source, boil it if you need to and cool it down, and then a half teaspoon of salt and eight teaspoons of sugar. If you're doing a home formula, always make sure you taste it. It should be about as salty as tears. If it's not, not at least a little bit salty, or if it's too salty, you need to, to adjust some things. Um, there's also a pinch and scoop method, a little bit smaller water, a pinch of salt and a handful of sugar. Um, will get you in the ballpark to do the job. 
And you can flavor these up with just a little bit of fruit juice, coconut water, mash up some banana and put in it, just whatever you need to. The banana's nice, gives a little potassium, and the child will take it a little better, give it a little bit of flavor. So, you all might have your own home recipes for this, but these are a couple I came up with uh, in the literature. Zinc supplementation, we'll talk about that. That was sort of a new thing for me, not something we're, we're taught here, but is really uh, um, pushed by, by WHO. Um, it's been shown to decrease duration and severity of diarrhea, and also for two to three months, and I saw a recent study even maybe stretching out beyond that, the chance of the child getting the, another diarrheal episode goes way down if we do some zinc supplementation. So that is a micronutrient that is depleted in these diarrheal illnesses, and if we address that, we can uh, prevent a lot of problems. The, the usually recommended dose, if they're over six months, is 20 milligrams a day. Under six months, 10 milligrams a day. And you do that for about two weeks. And that goes a long way toward helping. And there have been you know, a number of studies in the literature. I did see one recently that seemed to question it, but the bulk of the studies I've seen, and it's still in the recommendations to go ahead and do the zinc supplement. And I don't know if there's any, any uh, reason not to. So... Regular diet, uh, as soon as you get them rehydrated, you can get them started eating. Most will tolerate lactose. That's sometimes an issue that I was always taught in training was, well, don't give them milk for a while, but most kids are going to tolerate lactose, so that's okay. They're breastfeeding, get that going as soon as you can um, so we can get some, some nutrition to the child. Uh, even as you're resuming a regular diet, they're having a lot of ongoing diarrhea, you can still use the um, rehydration solution. And then, uh, you know, just a bland diet what we talked about uh, could be helpful. Um, avoid the fatty foods and foods that are high in the simple sugars. So we're going to talk about some of these categories of diarrhea a little bit, how to treat them and how to assess to try to figure out again uh, which path we're going to go down. The acute gastroenteritis, again, we already talked about, is caused by the viruses and some of the E. coli. Um, the child's well-nourished. They're going to recover in two or three days. As long as we focus on hydration, we don't necessarily need to use antibiotics. And so if it seems to be a fairly simple case of gastroenteritis, even you know, in the mission field setting where the bacterial illnesses are more prevalent, uh, you can usually get by with, without the antibiotics. Cholera. Um, again, I don't know if anyone in the room that's been in Haiti lately that will be more experienced in a cholera outbreak than, than I am, but... Uh, again, it's that profuse watery diarrhea, and you get rapid severe dehydration. Um, hydration is very key, of course. Um, for adults, a dose of doxycycline, 300 milligrams, is usually effective, um, assuming you can get, get the hydration issues solved, which is the biggest thing. Um, there are some areas where there's tetracycline, doxycycline resistance, so Cipro and uh, azithromycin are, are alternatives. Um, of course, in children in pregnancy, you need to use the erythromycin or azithromycin. So, but the key in, in the cholera is going to be the, uh, the hydration, especially. Um, parasites, different ones can cause diarrhea. Um, and that's typically in the, the chronic diarrhea that we talked about. So if you got got someone who's having diarrhea for a couple of weeks, maybe they failed a first course of antibiotics, need to be start thinking about some other things. Um, Giardia would be the most common in this setting of a non-inflammatory diarrhea. I get a lot of gas, bloating, uh, flatulence. Um, sometimes you get severe malabsorption associated with that, so if they're having signs of that, you can think about uh, um, giardia. In that setting, metronidis will be your treatment of choice. So. 
the inflammatory category, um, one of the big actors is Shigella. It may start out watery and then becomes more bloody, start to get a lot of abdominal pain, cramps, high fever, um, uh, quinolones like ciprofloxacin, uh, uh, Bactrim, uh, it's very helpful. Salmonella, that's often a food source, food poisoning source, and uh, usually within 8 to 72 hours. Um, watery, a lot of cramps, fever, vomiting, and in severe cases you get the bloody diarrhea with it. You can get bacteremia with salmonella, and sometimes you, you, know, you can get salmonella osteomyelitis and different complications that you'll sometimes see. If it's a fairly mild case and an otherwise healthy person, uh, a lot of people don't recommend antibiotics. Uh, can sometimes extend the duration of illness and doesn't really change the ultimate outcome. If it's severely ill, you're worried about bacteremia, uh, then uh, again, the quinolones or the uh, uh, Sceptra products uh, will work. Another inflammatory cause, Campylobacter. Uh, again, with Campylobacter, something like Shigella in the presentation, they're going to have more, more abdominal pain. So high fever, abdominal pain, blood in stools uh, gets you into that inflammatory or dysentery category. And um, Quinolones have been used a lot for Campylobacter, and it's kind of nice because, again, without cultures, it could be Shigella, it could be Campylobacter. Quinolone is going to be really helpful. Problem is, there are many areas of the world now where we're seeing a lot of resistance to the quinolones with Campylobacter, so it's important to try to know what's going on in your region, uh, and in those settings, uh, azithromycin is going to be your, your drug of choice. Yersinia, another similar uh, bacterial cause. Um, treatment uh, with antibiotics may not uh, be so helpful, in uh, uh, some uh, author's opinion. Uh, Severe and persistent cases, you also, uh, again, you're in the same category of antibiotics with the quinolones, typically for adults, or uh, the uh, scepter products, and then that, that'll be your drug of choice in children. And then the uh, E. coli, the O157, uh, we've seen some outbreaks, especially here in the U.S. Again, the dysentery, the severe abdominal pain. Uh, with this one, typically don't get as high a fever, so that can be one differentiating thing. Uh, bloody diarrhea. In this case, uh, the main complication is hemolytic uremic syndrome, and so when you're seeing that, your trigger is often going to be the E. coli 157. And if you have a culture that shows that that's your, your organism, or you're seeing the hemolytic uremic syndrome, and you really think that's it, antibiotics are not that helpful, and some people will contend to make it worse. So... Unfortunately, in our mission field settings, we may not have those cultures. We may not have that, that information, and we have to make a, a judgment call um, whether to use the antibiotics or not. Sometimes it's hard not to. Inflammatory diarrhea is uh, getting out of the bacterial causes, amoeba, uh, amoebiasis, amoeba dysentery can also cause a, a bloody diarrhea. Many times that will be more of a chronic presentation, but it can be acute. Um, there's a whole spectrum with disease from amoeba, from an asymptomatic cyst passer to extraintestinal manifestations like liver abscess, um, and then severe colitis. Uh, and the treatment is, again, metronidazole, uh, similar to the uh, Giardia, although the dose is much higher. So you know, if you're treating for amoeba, you want to make sure you get the higher dose, 750 milligrams three times a day. Tinidazole is another alternative that's out there now. And then... Uh, uh, there's some other uh, regimens out there as well. 
When we treat for amoeba, we still have to deal with the cyst uh, issue. The cysts persist even after we get rid of the acute infection, so iodoclonal is the treatment of choice for um, eliminate carriage and uh, help prevent spread. And then in typhoid fever, um, another severe uh, protracted fever it can go on for several weeks. So if you get some of the chronic fever, abdominal pain and diarrhea, then, then typhoid fever comes into your differential. Um, it basically uh, invades uh, a lot of the uh, monocytes in the spleen, liver, pyrus patches, lymph nodes. And that why it is so persistent with the fever and also leads to complications. As you get into the lymph tissue in the bowel, it will sometimes lead to bowel perforation and, and then uh, static infections from there. Also treated with the quinolones, third-generation cephalosporins can be helpful, and azithromycin. done with these. And then antibiotic-associated colitis or C. diff uh, um, comes in a differential if they've been on antibiotics for quite a while. Um, and again, abdominal pain, fever, uh, and you can treat with metronidazole. Oral vancomycin is also helpful, not typically available to us in emission settings, and metronidazole is uh, your first choice, though. We've got a combination of people in, in the room here, and at least several that haven't been to the mission field yet or, or have been more in short-term settings. And so I want to – let me get back before we do that. One last thing. One of the things we haven't talked about much is worms. Worms typically don't cause diarrhea. So sometimes, you know, we'll see, you know, one of the questions that, you know, people have when they go in the mission field, they don't know much about worms and, and diseases, and they think, oh, those worms cause diarrhea. It's usually not um, – Exception is trichuriasis or whipworm can cause and have infections of bloody diarrhea, and that's treated with albendazole. So that would be uh, one key exception to think about. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about traveler's diarrhea. Many of us will be faced with these either questions from friends or family or ourselves or what should we do when um, we're going to a, a new area of the world. Uh, 20 to 60 percent of people on a two-week trip will um, develop diarrhea. So it's very common. Uh, about a quarter of those cases, it's severe enough that they're going to change their plans, uh, not be able to do the things they went there to do. Uh, about 3% will have ongoing problems uh, even when they get home. And this is important for folks that, that work here. Typically, when we see gastroenteritis uh, here, it's going to be viruses are top predominance, and, and so we're not very quick to use antibiotics and diarrhea. But if you've got a returning traveler, that's going to be reversed, uh, so a lot more bacterial causes in traveler's diarrhea. Um, and again, a lot of the organisms we've already talked about, still a high pro or, uh, uh, some prevalence of viruses, even in, in returning travelers. And we've heard about outbreaks of norovirus on cruise ships and things like that. Par parasites are, are less common. So when people come back from the trip, they've got some diarrhea, they're all worried that maybe they picked up some kind of parasite. That's usually not the case. Things that would make you think more about a parasite if someone's been somewhere for a lot longer. So someone goes somewhere for several months, that needs to be a lot higher in your differential, and you need to be quicker to either test or treat for those. Or someone's not responding to treatment. You treat them for a typical you know, bacterial traveler's diarrhea, they come back in a week or two, they're not better, you need to test or, or consider treatment for, for Giardia. Self-treatment, it's important when you're counseling people before they go what to do if they get diarrhea, since um, up to a 50-50 chance or more that they're going to get it. Um, 
talked to him about rehydration. Rehydration solutions are helpful. Uh, bismuth compounds, Pepto-Bismol, is, is a good self-treatment. And if it's a non-bloody diarrhea without high fever, then uh, things like loperamide uh, can be helpful. And uh, if you need an antibiotic, uh, again, quinolones or azithromycin would be the main alternatives. Rifamixin is on the market, and the problem with it is it, it's fairly limited to E. coli. Uh, that's one of our top causes, but there are other things that cause it, so um, that's an option, but uh, may not uh, be as, as broad spectrum. One of the big issues in, in talking about traveler's diarrhea is should we put people on prophylaxis? And generally, no. Generally, you're not going to want people just taking antibiotics just because they're going on a trip. But there might be some special circumstances, repeated episodes of traveler's diarrhea. Um, I've got a nurse that's traveled with us many times, and every time she goes, she's sick for several days. It just, I don't know, something about her, her system is susceptible, so we finally decided to put her on preventive antibiotics when she goes. Um, sometimes you're in a situation where you just really can't afford to be sick, not that anyone really wants to be sick, so that's kind of a judgment call, but there might be situations where you want to use preventive antibiotics for that reason. Or someone's got chronic disease where a traveler's diarrhea episode might have a lot more uh, important uh, complications, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, AIDS, diabetes. If you're going to do prevention, a once-a-day quinolone, you know, one, a dose a day of uh, ciprofloxacin or something like that is uh, uh, usually helpful. Um, you can use the rifamixin. Um, it's, it's fairly expensive and is limited to E. coli coverage, but that is out and available. We're actually doing the Pepto-Bismol, the bismuth compounds, two to four times a day. The only downside of that is having to do it so much more often, which is often hard to remember. Um, chronic diarrhea, that's the other big category. Uh, we've spent all this time talking about acute diarrhea. But uh, compared to what we're used to in the developed world, you know, persistent diarrhea in the developed world is more likely to be uh, some uh, underlying disease. Think about celiac disease, other food allergies, uh, maybe inflammatory bowel disease. But in the developing world, it's more likely to be a result of an infection. So that, that changes our approach a little bit. And there's a lot of different mechanisms. You can keep getting repeated infections. Or maybe you have a chronic infection that never clears. Or you have an infection, and the infection clears, but then there's a, a malnutrition that's developed. And once malnutrition develops, then in and of itself, that can cause diarrhea. And it could be a zinc deficiency. There's also been people looking at vitamin A deficiency, um, uh, or just sometimes protein calorie malnutrition in and of itself will cause a chronic diarrhea. Um, it's very common, uh, three to... 5% of the infants worldwide have diarrhea lasting more than two weeks. Any given episode of diarrhea, less than 10%, will go on to be chronic. But we talked about all these uh, deaths from diarrhea in the world, and about half of them are from chronic diarrhea. Um, so overall, it's still a big problem. And if you have a child that gets gastroenteritis, about 10 to 20% will go on to get a chronic diarrhea. Nutritional therapy, again, is the mainstay, so, you know, trying to keep them, uh, you know, and then children that are breastfeeding, keep that going, keep their nutrition up is very important. Um, you know, supplementing, making sure they're getting enough protein, you know, from their local diet, and so making sure that there's a protein source somehow. Uh, 
if you have chronic diarrhea, there can be a secondary lactose uh, deficiency or carbohydrate intolerance. So sometimes making some diet adjustments when it's practical might be helpful. And then we've talked a lot about the zinc supplementation and the fact that it does reduce that severity and persistence of diarrhea. Um, there's also talk now in the WHA literature about vitamin A and trying to increase the vitamin A in the diet at least for a couple weeks uh, might be helpful. And then there's even been look at a lot of the other micronutrients um, as well. In chronic diarrhea, where do the antibiotics come into play? Um, you can't get a chronic bloody diarrhea, and we've talked about a lot of those causes. You might have a persistent Shigella or Campylobacter infection, so we can treat for those. And amoebiasis is the other big one in a chronic diarrhea situation to think about, with, especially if there's blood. And uh, so treatment with metronidazole for that might be appropriate. Um, in a chronic non-bloody diarrhea, a lot of times it's nutritional issues, so the nutritional support is important. And then the other non-bloody one that can be chronic is Giardia. So it might still be appropriate if you're not sure to go ahead and give a dose of uh, treatment for, the, for uh, that with metronidazole. And then the other thing as a cause of malabsorption is uh, chronic uh, ascaris infection or uh, hookworm or whipworm infections. So we talked about worms not in most cases being caused from acute diarrhea, but they can lead to malnutrition, and any whatever the cause of malnutrition you have, that can present with diarrhea. So. We focused on things that are typically the infectious causes of diarrhea and typically the gastroenteritis. But when you see a patient presenting with diarrhea, it's always good to step back and think about, before I go down this road of the typical things, what are some, some other causes that I want to at least rule out in my head? First one's malaria. Any setting where you have a patient with fever uh, in a malaria area, you always got to think about malaria. And malaria can't present with diarrhea. It can present with just about anything. So... Many, many times you need to be t treating malaria and. And so even, in, even though we're talking about diarrhea, always keep malaria right near the top of your list. Sometimes appendicitis will present with diarrhea. So always, you know, that's where that abdominal exam and history really comes into play. Make sure you do a good exam and, you know, if, you know don't, don't forget about appendicitis, even though, you know, we don't think of diarrhea that much always with appendicitis. Obviously, that's a, one we don't want to miss. And then young children in a susception. It's very important. Sometimes they'll have that classic, you know, they talk about the current jelly stool, and uh, sometimes it's just a mucousy stool, and sometimes you don't always see that. So if you have a, you know, a young child, you know, especially under two or three, that is in that age where interception presents, making sure we're doing a good exam and, and trying to rule that out is important. Uh, and then when we're talking about diarrhea with blood, with blood you know, interception again can present that way as well. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease will sometimes present acutely. Um, that's not going to be your typical thing, especially in children in a de uh, developing world. Uh, sometimes colon cancer present that way. Older patients have to think about ischemic colitis, sometimes presenting as an acute uh, diarrhea with blood. And then other non-infectious causes, especially of chronic diarrhea, malnutrition or a post-infectious malabsorption, uh, tropical sprue, which is sort of lumped into that post-infectious malabsorption, we think, where you get alterations in the, the, the bowel and then you have a chronic diarrhea because of that. HIV, AIDS causes a lot of diarrhea, uh, so that, that's a big important thing. And then we talked about inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, uh, lactose intolerance. So there are other causes just to think about um, with diarrhea.
What I wanted to get to as we're getting close to the end is just a little schematic that has helped me, especially in these settings where, you know, we don't have a lot of lab testing. We can just sim separate people into some simple categories. We're going to be on target a lot more of the time with, with our treatment decisions. Again, just like with the ABCs, we talked about our first ABC um, equivalent in diarrhea illnesses. Got to assess the hydration, deal with that first, especially in the, the moderate severe diarrhea. And then we have the acute and the chronic diarrhea. And then in each category, again, the inflammatory or non-inflammatory, or whichever, uh, you know, bloody or non-bloody, whichever terminology you like to use, it gets people into those same categories. Yeah, now how well these project, a little bit small. And the acute diarrhea, uh, once you break it down, that inflammatory, non-inflammatory, then you've just got a few simple things to think about. If you get on the non-inflammatory side, if it's mild, likely viral, or even if it is a bacterial uh, E. coli, but, but fairly mild, just supportive care, hydration. Um, more severe, non-inflammatory, uh, think about cholera. You know, obviously, if there's an outbreak, that, that makes your diagnosis easy. Um, takes a little more index of suspicion if you're not in an area where you've been seeing that a lot. Um, and then for the E. coli's that are more severe, causing the non-inflammatory diarrhea, quinolones or um, uh, tetracyclines or the sulfur drugs. The other big category is inflammatory. So if you're seeing a lot of pain, blood in the stool, things like that, then the main bacterial things, the Shigella and Campylobacter, are going to respond to quinolones or azithromycin. If you're in a setting where antibiotic-associated diarrhea is a possibility, then you have to think about that, and you might use metronidazole. Or if you're in an area where um, there's a lot of amoebiasis, uh, then metronidazole or, or tinidazole is an alternative. And then chronic. So we've done our acute, now we've got our chronic, and again, we're in the two categories, pretty simple, of uh, watery diarrhea. A lot of times nutritional support's the main thing. Again, if you're in a cholera area, you can think about it, or sometimes... Uh, if they're just not getting better and you don't have the ability to test, it's reasonable to treat them with a, a course of antibiotic for the common empiric pathogens. And especially in the chronic diarrhea, Giardia is coming up a lot higher on the list. So you're probably going to want to treat them with metronidazole if you're not, not seeing a response. And in a chronic bloody diarrhea, again, could be a chronic infection or a reinfection with your Shigella and Campylobacter. Uh, and then the metronidazole comes into play for amoebiasis. Hopefully that's been a help in kind of helping us think through what are the possibilities with diarrhea and how we can get people and patients into categories that we can uh, pick a reasonable treatment and not feel like we're just having to, to shotgun what we're doing, but we have a reasonable schematic for how to, how to sort, sort things out. Does anyone have any questions, comments, suggestions, things you've seen that can help the group? There's something down here. Um, in, the, in the, the mission setting, I haven't really seen a lot of uh, um, literature about that. Um, there's been, what I've seen in the literature has been mixed. Some, some things have been helpful and other, others maybe not so much. So, and If anyone in the room has got a lot more experience with that, it would be good. I think it's back here. Mm -hmm. and we are in a small school building surrounded by other school buildings where 
when this arrives full force, um, some of the logistical things, do we need to be completely separate from the school system? Do we need to, I mean, most of these kids at home don't have flushing toilets. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have clean water. We have a deep well. Can deep wells get infected? Um, uh, we need to be concerned about keeping the cholera patients in a completely separate um, waste Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not going to answer, be able to answer all your questions um, because a lot of it comes down to logistics, I think, too. What's, what's reasonable to do? Obviously, the more separation and isolation you have, the, the better. Um, but, you know, then you have the what's reasonable with, you know, especially depending on how, how severe your outbreak is and what you're having to deal with. But um, I guess I'd say, you know, the best question is to do the best you can in terms of... Uh, um, you know, with the waste, you know, doing what you can to keep that separate, trying to keep the patients, you know, as much as you can separate from, from the non-sick uh, is very important. Uh, I'm not sure the best answer on the toilet because we've got competing uh, issues of, you know, dealing just dealing with the waste is probably going to be better going through that septic system, but then you've got, you know, exposure to the other people using it that, that aren't, aren't sick with cholera. So, you know, that's a, a hard judgment call as well. Um, my experience personally isn't a lot in disaster relief type situations, so I don't know if anyone else has any comments that would help. Yeah? I just, it's really important to remember, though, that most people survive cholera mm -hmm. if they can get early treatment. And so mm -hmm. early diagnosis and treatment, mm -hmm. oral rehydration, most people will live through just oral rehydration. But yeah. you, have, you can be dehydrated in less than four hours. So it's very, very important to, yeah. to do that. Yeah. I was also going to ask about your... Yeah. Um, recommendations regarding lopiramide and mm -hmm. when to use it as on short-term mission teams but also with people in the, um, in the community that come. Um, I think it definitely can be used with care uh, and just be, being very careful about, you know, you don't want to use it in the inflammatory <coughs> situation. So, you know, contraindications, blood in the stool, high fever, and, and more than just a, any, a little tiny bit of abdominal pain. I mean, most people with any kind of diarrhea will get some cramping, but, you know, if it's severe and there's any chance at all that it's more of a dysentery type thing, you'd want to avoid it. But I think it would, it, you know, in the, in the viral diarrhea or even in the mild E. coli type situations with the toxigenic E. coli, um, you can't just take, you have to be very careful. And especially in, you know, younger the children, the more care you've got to really got to take and really think twice. I'd definitely avoid it in that, that situation, but... A lot of team members yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. Um, in the traveler's diarrhea situation, it's actually been used quite a bit because most of the time you're not going to be into those things, but just being especially real careful about those contraindications. Yeah. One thing that we forget about that is so simple is hand washing with soap. Mm -hmm. And I've been to Haiti several times, and I know that that's not always, that's not. It's very difficult. They don't have a hand washing station. They don't have running water. They don't have soap. Yes. And so um, I, I have set up a lot of tippy taps. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And just reinforcing, you know, that you have to wash your hands before you eat.
Yeah, and just one final comment, and I'm glad you brought that up, because prevention is key, and anything we can do in community health, um, I'm a big proponent of CHE, community health evangelism, and anything we can do preventively for these illnesses is really huge. So thanks for coming. We'll stop now. We've got another presentation coming up, but thank you.